What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Social Standard Podcast. My guest today is Leah Haberman. She is a well-known voice in the creator economy. If you don't follow her newsletter, you've got to do it. It's called In Case You Missed It, and um, it's Buffer actually listed it, I think, as one of the top uh, newsletters to follow in 2023. So um, she's here. She also is a really interesting candidate, uh, person for this conversation just because she's an instructor at UCLA Extension. Um, where she teaches creator economy, influencer marketing to all of the up-and-coming Gen Zers that will probably be working for a lot of the brands and agencies um, that listen to this podcast. And of course, she is a consultant and advisor for a lot of brands in terms of marketing and strategy. So Leah, welcome. Wonderful to have you. Thank you. We're going to be working for those Gen Z kids, by the way. We are. We are, yes. abso- we are absolutely going to work. And probably the person who knows that best is Jake. So Jake, yes. do you want to introduce yourself as well? Oh, hi. I'm Jake. <laughs> I'm VP of the Social Standard. Yeah. Um, I oversee all of our accounts activity campaigns from sort of uh, end to end uh, I work with uh, specifically some of our you know higher level larger dollar mm-hmm. uh, accounts Adobe um, Zendesk and, just name right. a few and I manage uh, the accounts team so um, I'm a Gosh, uh, speaking of uh, one day working for Gen Z, I'm a 12-year veteran of influencer marketing starting at uh, full screen in 2012. And uh, so I've been, I've, 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 uh, I've run the gauntlet. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Full screen. I remember that name. Sure. Very <laughs> much so. Uh, yeah. No, exactly. It, it, yes, it was a name. Uh, and MCNs were a thing. And you probably have some uh, perspective on uh, what value they uh, represented then and if they will have any value, you know, moving forward. I think that we are going to see, sorry to jump right into Go this, for it. but into I it. think we are going to see a po- video podcast MCN yes. resurgence. Like mm-hmm. it's yes. kind of like the MCN 2.0, mm-hmm. um, with video podcasts, mm-hmm. um, and podcasting. I mean, we've are, we already see, you know, there's a lot of yeah. There's podcast. like Dear, Dear Media Studios, exactly. Right? Yeah. Dear Media. So we're already seeing that. But like yep. the Alex Cooper news, yes, um, with her company that yes. she's going to be launching trending. Isn't which that I, so interesting? Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. Actually, I just, just think, give. Our, I don't know if yeah. our audience will know about. It. Do you want to give a little synopsis on what's going on there? Yeah. Um, so Alex Cooper, who hosts Call Me Daddy, the yeah. Call Me Daddy podcast. That's, she was at Barstool Sports. There was a whole big falling out there. She left and took her IP effectively with her. Smart, very smart, um, and now another smart move where she's essentially launching a media company aimed at Gen Z, and so it'll have additional, you know, podcast series, um, kind of like a Dear Media, yes, you know, like a version of that. Totally. Um, and I think you know, I was reading an article like she just announced this uh, recently, and so there was an article about it, and they were saying I think she's like twenty seven or something. She's a, a millennial, but it's very much aimed at. Yeah. Gen Z, um, and I think it's Her just style has always, in my opinion, been more Gen Z versus millennial-based, right? In terms of, like, the way that she just talks to her audience, and she she has a lot of that, like, not cringeworthy in a bad way, but, like, that kind of, like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, can we say this? And yeah. that, that feels, that authenticity, I think, rolls really well with Gen Z. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, I heard something recently where we're not supposed to, like, categorize people as, like, Gen Z or, or uh, millennials or well, whatever, it's actually, but... I was, I was thinking that on the way over here. I mean, I heard a theory of... Uh, I mean, I, I forget uh, where or I read it, but just the sort of arbitrariness of assigning, you know, generations. I mean, basically... To whatever extent uh, a younger generation, um, 
bears certain you know collective characteristics that doesn't necessarily mean that they're uh you know that their that their predecessors or their antecedents don't also have those characteristics just to a lesser extent it's basically you know every any regeneration kind of exists on a spectrum but it's more yeah. about like the cultural pressures cultural Correct. political societal pressures that are, are how they're how they come about, yeah. right, with each generation. I think that's that to me is why you would. Yeah. It's not that they're just totally different people. No, I mean, they're right. It's a, they're, I mean, it's effect. They're effectively marketing designations. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyways, back to Alex. Yeah, yeah, I just think it's it's fascinating, um, and I think it's really smart, and it's another yeah. example of somebody who really started as a creator, mm. now deciding. Like, I'm not going to work for other people. I'm essentially going to build my own empire and right. go up against traditional, whether it's media businesses, whether it's, you know, uh, food and bev, whatever it is. Um, I've always seen creators and the people that I've worked with and a lot of the people that I've taught are incredibly entrepreneurial. Yeah. Um, and so they're creators, but they're also entrepreneurs and business people and founders. And so I just love anytime I see a creator essentially, you know, owning their own, uh, you know, method of creation, distribution, um, you know, revenue, stream uh i just love it so yeah. it's like a success story or it's an interesting launch to what i hope is a success story for her and for her new media company trending yeah. well and i mean i think you've seen a lot of that even with traditional celebrities too like reese witherspoon um i think tim mcgraw is doing something with down home in um in nashville that's coming out i think pretty soon so you know these guys build these sort of media empires or these big brands around themselves and there's no reason that creators can't and shouldn't do that right i mean yeah. mr beast is obviously the quintessential example of someone who's done a phenomenal job um, on that and was light years ahead. But I think, you know, as he sets the stage for those people, um, it really kind of creates the path easily. N not easily. Nothing's easy. But it makes it a little easier every time somebody pushes, you know, the line back a little bit yeah. for you. It's a good example, too, for creators to look at. Like I would say, like you said, um, Mr. Beast, you know, Emma Chamberlain, yes. for example, um, who is a great example, I think. And it just, it gives people a path. I think, like you said, at the beginning, they were really having to forge, like, how do you do this? How yeah. do you build a business? And yes, we have to acknowledge that some of the bigger creators like Emma Chamberlain, like Mr. Beast, um, had you know agents and, and managers sure. more akin to like what a celebrity would have. So a celebrity has a whole machine around them mm -hmm. that will help them launch a company. Creators really have had to go at it more alone. The bigger creators had a little help, but still they were forging a path sure. in a way that had not been done before. Um, and so I think that gave younger people, students, certainly the people in my class, um, a model to look at. It's a working model that yeah. they can follow and kind mm -hmm. of a roadmap exactly. um, you know, to success. And I think that that is, in, a lot of, in the cases of a lot of those creators, also intentional, right? I mean, they sort of, you know, they tend to eschew uh, some of those more traditional pathways simply because they came up doing it on their own and that's kind of the only way that they are accustomed to doing it. Um, Yes, so this is an interesting thing because I asked one of the trends that I've seen recently or we've talked about in 2023 is hiring creators in-house. So brands are hiring you know, TikTokers to run their TikTok channels. They're hiring people in-house. Um, we're seeing creators in residence. I don't know if you saw the yes. LA Public Library hiring a creator in residence. I, I yes. saw it in your newsletter and it yeah. is something that, it, I mean, those are relationships that we uh, have facilitated at the Social Standard for Brands, uh, even uh, with people in this very room. That's right. Yeah. So I find that fascinating. Against that backdrop, in my class two weeks ago, I was asking, you know, we were talking about this 
this trend. And I had Lindsay Gamble, um, yeah. who is another, was also yeah. on the insider list of creator economy experts follow. Brilliant guy. Um, he speaks, he's been a frequent speaker in my class talking about trends. And we were talking about this trend of creators in house, creators in residence. And I asked the students, so it, who's interested? In this particular group, not one person raised their hand. Um, there's one student in my class who's taken multiple classes with me. She's an AR creator. Hmm. Brilliant. She works with Meta. She works with Snapchat. She works with TikTok, um, creating filters. She's worked with major brands. And she said, I want the freedom. Like, I was curious because it's a trend that we're seeing. And so it, it's interesting being in class because it always kind of brings things back a little bit into perspective where you can look at kind of bigger industry trends and say, oh, this is what's going to happen. And then you talk to, you know, 27 students and you're like, all right, who, who's interested in this? Like, who wants to work in-house? And not one person raised their hand. And it's a little bit of a reality check for me that, like, it might be an industry trend, but, like, before we get too carried away with this, it is interesting to talk to students. And they, you know, these students, and I asked her in particular because she said she wasn't interested, the freedom, like, she loves the freedom to set her own schedule. Um, and it kind of goes back to a little bit about what you were saying of, like, these are people who started as creators, as you know, they're essentially entrepreneurs, like self-employed people. And so not everybody wants to go in-house. I'm Gen X, so I look at going in-house as like, oh, it's the ultimate safety net. You know, like I, I want that stability and safety of a paycheck. For somebody that's come up and only made money so far as a creator, like for some people, there's just no appeal or value to going in-house. And I, that, it was just interesting for me. It was a little eye-opening that like, oh, they're not all embracing this. And I think sometimes it's good for my generational perspective to hear what the students are thinking because it kind of reminds me like, okay, what I look at and through my lens, what might be a good deal, what might be beneficial to a creator is completely different to somebody who's 21, 22 and a full-time well, creator. But I think you're also a little bit on the idealist. Like you're, you live in an ideal, in an ideal world, I would be, you know, yes. if I'm a student, I would be a creator and an influencer and running my own thing. Of course, that's ideal. Wouldn't everyone love to do that? But I think if you if you sort of overlay statistics on small businesses in the United States and the number of people who are actually not risk risk like enough to, to do it, number one, you have to have the confidence to do it. And number two, it's you're not really successful that that often. Most startups fail, right? Most small yeah. businesses fail. And so I think that there is probably a gap there between what they want to do and what they will do. Yes. That would be that would be my only push because but I do think it's right to look at to, to see what they're I mean, yeah, the, in, you know? you're absolutely right that the people who end up making it, and I like off the top of my head, I don't sure. know the numbers, but you know, I know the statistics come out of like the people who make over a hundred thousand dollars a year yeah. as a creator, it's a very small portion of oh, people. Oh yeah, even over fifty thousand. It's like what one was it one in twelve or twelve percent? I can't yeah, remember. It, it's um, that's tiny. how many people yeah. actually do it. It's really small. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Which is why it's a side hustle. In a lot of ways. For a lot of people, right? yeah. Which is also what I think brings us sort of back to that, like social media managers as like these important figures because they have figured out how to be a creator and they do know how to make content and they can do it for brands. And social media, I mean, social media managers have become influencers in their own right. I mean, just look at the, for me, I see it all the time on LinkedIn. It's like the conversations that are yeah. happening there with the social, and it's not just social media managers, anyone in the social space, talk about tips and tricks and they're sharing good things. And I'm part of um, Rachel Carton's Discord community. So I get on there and I get to see what people are talking about. And it's really interesting because I think that is a really nice path for a lot of people who want to have the stability and actually like a constant paycheck, but still want to pursue creative initiatives 
um, on their own right. And we've even had that historically at the social standard, right? Our creative director for a while was a, um, an influencer and he was in the fitness space. And he was, you know, we were obviously paying him to do things for brands, but on the side he was doing his own stuff. Yeah. yeah. That idea of like, I think the, the social media manager as like the main yes. character. Yeah, that was her. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that has become a thing. And um, it's something that I have seen, I mean, throughout kind of the span of my career, the amount of power that a social media manager has, I think has always been underestimated just in being yes. like the front door to your brand. Yes. Um, and I think social media managers, you know, you and I have talked about this, but it's like, they've got a sense of humor, they've got a perspective. Yeah. And I think sometimes the success of a brand on social, it's not about the brand. Like you can have a playbook, you can have brand guidelines, but it is the social, a good social media manager who is really creative, really talented, and is able to like bring their voice to everything that they're putting online is amazing. And I almost feel like accounts should be signed yeah. by social media managers so that yeah. you know, and you could follow somebody around like, oh, this person, you know, went from, I mean, uh, McDonald's to Coca-Cola to Domino's, yeah. for example. Um, and yeah, I completely agree. And Rachel Carton also, I have to just chime in that, also, uh, love her, love her newsletter. Um, yes. We also get, we often get mentioned in the same conversations. Totally. Um, but I think, yeah, what she does is just, is excellent and so yeah. valuable for social media. That's right. And Rachel, if you're listening, we need you to come on the podcast. <laughs> One thing that Jess and I talked about was sort of the earlier iteration of this in the publisher space, yes. where you had a lot of publishers who had, you know, who's who basically elevated social media managers or elevated, you know, editorial staff into on-camera talent, particularly sort of during the height of the, you know, pivot to video uh, boom uh, yeah. that publishers were adopting. Buzz, you said BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed Bon Appetit. Bon Appetit, Refinery29. I mean, these were all companies that either had vast uh, creator networks of whose, you know, IP they sometimes had... Uh, stakes in or um, had, you know, just sort of elevated people that were otherwise editorial staff into on-camera talent. And now a lot of those, I mean, whether it's, you know, Molly Boz or Alex Delaney, um, Refinery29, I believe the woman's name was Lucy Fink. Um, yes. Yeah. Oh, I remember. Yes, her videos. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, all of whom have, you know, uh, now basically spun off into being independent uh, content creators and influencers um, in their own right. Um, so I think there is probably among you know your students a wariness to adopt that sort of relationship with a brand because you know unlike a publisher, uh, you are going to be beholden to you know a particular interest and point of view for many years uh, thereafter. And you know that may that might uh, damage or not even damage but certainly uh make an Im- you know impress upon your own personal brand uh to an extent that say working for a publisher might not right i mean if you're working for say mcdonald's uh for two years versus bon appetit um you know via bon appetit you're going to be uh, associated with uh any number of uh advertisers sponsors uh and cuisines whereas you know working for mcdonald's you're probably you're working right, on exactly. but it's probably more of a style that you're exactly. associated with McDonald's right whereas yeah. the publisher it is their brand yeah. and what their content and their right. content yeah. the interesting thing so I, there's so many I have so many thoughts around this and um, one of them is that the fitness industry a little bit like the publishing industry or media mm-hmm. uh, fitness has been really good at kind of growing 
their own in-house influencers. You look at Peloton, Peloton, yeah. Yeah. Peloton and just what they have done exactly. um, with, you know, building their own, like essentially nurturing kind of their own creatives and turning them into influencers, I think has been amazing. And I think the fitness industry has always been really good at either producing their own talent, um, you know, going out and partnering with talent, like thinking of Gymshark, uh, or influencers themselves launching their own fitness yeah. companies. Yeah. I think fitness is yeah. like maybe one of the best examples of creators integrated at kind of every level, in-house, externally, you know, all around. It helps that they happen to be hot by default. They're very, <laughs> I mean, they're aesthetically, <laughs> conventionally attractive, which right. yes, yeah. helps putting them um, on camera. But I think, you know, you can have a hot person. A hot person does not necessarily translate no, right. to a great creator, a great influencer. Right. You know, they're not necessarily relatable or or. But they're, pro- they're providing immediate value to their audience through their workouts and their lifestyle, and they're very aspirational. And so it sort of ladders up because it's not only, hey, I want to be like this person. They show you how to become like them. Right. Yes. You can do my workouts. You can wear my clothes. You can take my supplements. Right. It, yeah. To me, that makes it a, a very easy roadmap and a very easy path. Yeah. And with the Peloton example, I, I you know, I sort of uh, somewhat ironically bring up the attractiveness uh, factor because I almost think of that as like a like a sort of digital reality show analog a little bit where we're in, you know, you have these you they, you collect all these sort of attractive people um, into one space um, and you have the core product, but then across, you know, social channels, you effectively have a, you know, an extension of the, yeah. of that experience uh, across, you know. They're characters. Uh, right, They're exactly. characters within a little universe. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because Peloton's actually moved away from that. I, yeah. I, if you yeah. saw earlier this year, they're kind of moving away from that. Um, Mm, is that the right thing to do? I don't, you know, clearly, like, I don't know what their long-term vision is, so I, it's hard to say it's the right or the wrong move. Um, from Based on what I know of the fitness industry, it's, um, like, I'm curious to see how that works out for them. Um, you know, hope for the best. Uh, but, yeah, moving away from that talent that you've nurtured and built, um, you know, other companies would kill to have that kind of, that oh, stable yeah. of characters yeah. um, in their their arsenal, which leads me back to what you were saying about publishing and a lot of those companies, especially BuzzFeed in particular. I don't know if you remember when a lot of uh, personalities left BuzzFeed. Yeah. BuzzFeed was very smart at very early on harnessing their in-house editors to become talent, to become on-camera talent, turning them into influencers, but then had fairly restrictive policies around what they could do or other things that they could do. And then you got all those why I'm leave, leaving yes, BuzzFeed videos. Was so it was like, time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. it was interesting because I think they had like, they were halfway there. They had 50% of the idea of like, yeah, let's like harness these people and turn them into in-house creators. But then it kind of turned on them because I think they tried to put too many guardrails and restraints on what these people could do. Yes. And it backfired. Right. And they also retained ownership to the extent that they were spinning them off into uh, standalone channels. Uh, BuzzFeed, I believe, was uh, retaining ownership of, you know. But that I think is a smart thing, though, right? Right. Yeah. 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 And it's like if, if you look at the WWE model, that's basically what they do, too, right? I mean, those guys are the the OG in terms of like creating characters and monetizing them and the personalities and all that. That's what they did. They always own everything around it, which, you know, now I think when you, when you insert things like NIL rights and all this, and I think we're sort of, sort of decoupling a little bit, but if I'm a brand, I'm actually looking at the Buzzfeed model and saying, what are the learnings from this? Because if you're a brand and you hire three social media 
creators to come on and be the face and the voice and the personality of your brand, what do you do when they leave? You find new people. Right. Well, you Respectfully, do. Respectfully, I disagree. I, I don't think that you really? okay. should try and control ownership. And I think especially... Well, ownership meaning that they post on the brand's channel. So you're building up your audience on there so you don't lose that audience when they leave. Now, what you do with it is a totally different, you know, it's a totally different conversation. But I think it's, you know, whereas with when you partner with creators, you borrow their audience for a minute. Here you're actually building an audience for your brand. Whether that's the right strategy or the wrong strategy, I don't know that it, it matters. But to me, I'm thinking if I'm a brand, that, that's how I'm approaching it from a business mindset, right? Yeah, I think even social managers, I think like the... Um, not only are creators not platform loyal anymore because right. of the volatility and all the changes we've seen, I think Gen Z, and I, you know, again, I don't want to kind of lump them all together, but like young people in general have less of a corporate loyalty yes, because definitely. it's not returned because there's no, um, you know, there's nothing in it for me if I'm a young person sure. and I'm joining a company, this is not, I'm not staying there for 30 years. And so I think that concept of, borrowing a creator for your campaigns is going to be similar to you're borrowing somebody for yes. your social channels yes. and when they walk away you've got to find somebody new who's going to bring a different flavor um but you i don't think and if i was a young person or i was advising a young person i would say yeah like you retained all your ip you do not um you know make your any of your social handles reflective of the company that you Right. work for right. because then you can't you may not be able to change that later or you know make sure that the company doesn't own those channels i think it's really we have gotten to that stage where every single person from an intern to a social media manager to the ceo is their own brand yeah um and so brand you know corporate brand is kind of less relevant and there's less loyalty there and so i think it's really into every individual for themselves is the way that we are moving right now. Gosh, cool. I, but I hope not in a lot of ways too because I feel like that's that's where you start to get really junky products that you can't you can't control for quality on because people if no one's loyal to you why do you build anything of sustenance? But and people meaning? are going to be loyal to the creator who launched this company or they're going to be loyal to the founder and their story. Yes, and I think that's why we've seen so many DTC like entrepreneurs and founders come in, come in front of the camera and they've had a lot of success too. Yeah. I think I had interviewed- And they've also inherited a lot of liability. Um, yes. You know, uh, like- uh, Liver King. Or uh, Great Jones. Yeah. Um, or any, um, what was the other one? Uh, uh, another one of those DTC- Tart. Tart. Tart's yeah. Well, not, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's been a lot of drama that. around the Tart CEO too. Yeah, yeah that's right. But uh, sort of, uh, to sort of piggyback on my earlier diatribe about generations, I do also think that this, uh, the, you know, the, the, the discrepancy in attitude then versus now sort of speaks to not just obviously the preeminence of the youngest generation, but the whole culture kind of evolving along with uh, them. The, that BuzzFeed, in those, those BuzzFeed incidences took place in a very specific context, which was the sort of pivot to video, right? Um, wherein a lot of these publishers were simply, you know, vastly overvaluing uh, that legacy content, you know, those those video libraries, as if they were going to have, you know, enormous ancillary downstream value. Of course, that didn't pan out, and it cost them, you know, yeah. one those relationships, um, and two, uh, you know, reputation. Um, so, you know, per your point, you would I'd like to think that. 
um, brands and publishers, publishers, but also, you know, brands who will be hopefully adopting this practice as well are much savvier now about, you know, what they need to actually, you know, codify and retain from these creators. Yeah. Treat, I would say treat them as an asset, not a liability. And I would also recommend there was an article written in 1997 in Fast Company by this guy called Tom Peters called The Brand Called You. Mm. Everybody should read that. It was in 1997. Wow. I'd say essentially this guy predicted, I mean, social didn't exist, so he wasn't able to necessarily bake in the idea that we'd have this distribution channel for speaking for ourselves. But it essentially foretold this idea that every single person at every single level in the company is essentially going to become their own brand mm. and how you should think about that and nurture that and protect that for yourself. Um, anyway, it's something I have my students read every semester. That's so. a great read. I'm going to yeah. check that out. And I think that that makes sense too, because the reality is I wonder, I sort of have this theory that where like the U.S. is going is much more towards smaller businesses. Because I think if you look like, if you look across the board, I just, whenever I go to like any larger entity employees just don't care about doing their job or customer service or anything and they don't care because it is more about like them and what they're doing in their personal brand so to me what i hope is that this then spawns a whole bunch of small businesses and a whole bunch of like personal brands do that and then people get to do really interesting things and then you don't have to worry so much about risk right because if it's really if it's you and you're you know whatever 100 employees that's a lot less risky of a situation to have somebody come on and do social media and be the face versus the CEO of Procter & Gamble, right? Like, the, you know, they're looking at like thousands and thousands of employees. And so there's a lot of legal stuff and you get you get sort of wrapped up in all of this. So I sort of think this is a time for small businesses, I guess is what where I'm, where I'm going with that, which I think ladders up to creators. Yeah, I mean, I would say to me, it's kind of like we're into like a, a, a barbell era where it's like a lot of small businesses mm. and then yeah. a lot of giant businesses that are gobbling everything up. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of, we're seeing things at both extremes and, you know, I think there's ways to make it work at both extremes. And um, I am, a, I'm a corporate girl. I love large companies. Sure. I've worked for very large companies. Um, and so, and I think you have your, you have your gems in there. You have your, you know, superstars in sure. those companies that are doing amazing work. Um, but, you know, to go back to like the idea of labeling a social channel um, and kind of crediting it to who is sure. running the social channel, like, I think it's interesting and I think a social media manager should get at least if their voice is on there should get you know at least a byline in a way oh, sure. in the yeah. same way that you know who's the CEO at this company or who's the CMO at this company you know they've got a, bit, a lot of visibility again it's everyone has a brand and yeah. so if you're a social media manager part of your brand is that visibility running the social channels I, to me that's like I think also speaks to like your your recruitment of like what you're looking for in yeah, an employee and absolutely. just making sure you just have to be that much more cautious that sure. you're hiring the right person and hiring somebody that can get on board and can work with you while still allowing them to bring their personality and flavor to the job because that is what's going to set you apart yeah. from somebody else that is either using AI or you know has such a like heavy-handed uh playbook that it just, it sounds so corporate and sure. just gets, it's white noise. It just gets tuned out by people. Yeah. yeah. Which is exactly why you need an influencer marketing agency to act as the intermediary <laughs> for that Exactly. Hire. But, uh, and for casting, all the specialties of casting that, you know, that influencer marketing agencies and, and us in particular are so good at because yeah. you have to find the right person, right? Yeah. And it's hard to do that. Do yeah. you guys have a name for that? Because I was thinking about that and like a lot of what influencer marketing agencies do 
is a version of casting. Yeah. And right. I don't, you know, and I almost feel like it's um, now because every company wants to find creators and influencers and the importance of finding the right person. I feel like that kind of concept of casting is even more important than it has been previously. Yeah. Like, we're not just looking at numbers. We're not just looking at engagement rate. We're looking at like so many different factors. And so what do you call that? Like, I think of title? it as being a creator recruiter. Yeah. Creator recruiter. Yeah. Okay. Um, because you are, because, you know, um, much, I mean, the, the, I mean, the workflow for influencer marketing is not all that different than the workflow from, uh, recruiting period. Right. Um, but in this case in particular, when you're looking to establish, uh, you know, a longer term relationship, you are effectively acting in the same modality as say, um, a contracting um, or you know outsourcing agency. Mm -hmm. um, you're managing you know that person's payroll and paperwork. Uh, you're you're prospecting that person. You're facilitating all of the um, interviews, but you know they are not going to be working within your organization to the same extent that would be a full time employee. Right. Um, they're going to have many similar obligations that would differentiate them from an influencer, from a pure influencer per se. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, the, they're still an employee. Um, and moreover, um, when, you know, if, if you work through an agency like ours that can sort of, you know, vet and prospect those people, the liability shouldn't ultimately be any greater, you know, the exposure, of course, but the liability isn't ultimately any greater than, you know, hiring a regular old person off the street, um, in my, you know, in my opinion. Right. It, it's interesting that you bring up liability because I gave a talk. I was at a conference up in Seattle and was talking about influencer marketing and it was a lot of uh, comms people, um, HR people, uh, and somebody brought up, you know, like they actually brought up the Kanye example and they were oh, like, yeah. you know, for people who are kind of like wary and like to me, I, I was like, listen, the Kanye example is something completely different. Yeah. Like that's really yeah. its yeah. own special situation. <laughs> and that is like, right. you know. You'd have to be living under a rock not not to appreciate the liability. Yeah, the, and it's just like a completely, there's so much complexity around that situation. But I do think, you know, I, I think that sometimes maybe people that haven't worked with influencers or creators or not that familiar with the industry don't even understand how much vetting goes into it. And, right. you know, my thing is like, Listen, you would have had so many extensive conversations and you know who you're getting into a partnership mm -hmm. with. And for example, like if you're hiring a comedian, a comedian's probably going to say something off the cuff, but like right. if you're a risk averse company, then don't hire that person, but you yeah. should have somebody that is like vetting for that and really 100%. digging yeah. deep into. And so it's not just a whim. It's not just we're going to hire this celebrity and then freak out when they implode and something goes wrong. It's like no, you would have like looked into every, you would have, I don't think people on the outside don't realize how far, you know, influencer or creator recruiters dig into years worth of feed, oh, scrolling, yeah. Yeah. comments, yeah. like every single, you know, Google search, like everything you're looking yeah. into every aspect and, and, and then you're making a calculated risk. Like, okay, this person entirely great. We're going to hire them or this person, there's some shit, something questionable. And if we end up hiring them and then shit hits the fan, you know, excuse my French, like you had a sense. And so you should mm -hmm. anticipate that you have a plan in place for like, we know that there was a problem with this where we are going to anticipate for that. And if anything goes wrong, here's our response to that situation. But you know, I don't think that the, um, 
you know, people in corporate America necessarily appreciate. Like, these are not just people hired on a whim. Yeah. This is like due diligence has been done. Correct. Yeah, and I think that that's why, I mean, at least where the, to the extent that there is this tremendous demand, uh, where the supply side is, uh, I don't think that anybody but an influencer marketing agency is necessarily equipped to, you mm-hmm. know, to, to fill that void. Uh, you're not going to go through a, you know, a, a traditional contracting or recruiting agency. Um, you're certainly not going to trust your, you know, own HR department to do that but perhaps at the last you know stages you know when it comes to actually figuring out the legal p's and q's um i do think that you know to for my point to the extent that the workflow is very similar um really only you know an influencer marketing agency is probably going to be uh, equipped to facilitate that for you um and we have done it <laughs> yeah. i mean and it's only know, getting I'm more speaking popular, from some right? experience yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you, you're actually the one that does most of it. So yes, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think I don't know. Just that the whole idea of like creator recruiter, like I said, or influencer recruiter. Yeah. Like I just think that that's um, you know on the on the kind of internal workings side, something that is going to become more and more important. I think people are going to like specialize in. Um, you know, not only vetting people, but also sourcing people, like understanding somebody before they get really big. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm thinking like of uh, Remy Bader. I don't yeah. know if you guys follow. Yeah. I love Remy Bader and followed her years ago. And you could just tell. Like there was a spark yeah, there. And there's sometimes, right. you know, some creators get popular because they have some sort of like, there's an external factor. They collaborate with somebody. They get hired by a certain company. Um, some people, it's just kind of like really hard work. And then some people just have kind of like a star quality. Mm-hmm. In the same way that there are certain actors that just like pop on screen um, and you see certain creators that like very early on, you're just like, oh my gosh, this person is lights up the camera. Like they're just magical. Yeah. Um, and I felt like she was one of those people yeah. and somebody who like it takes a special talent to be able to spot those people mm-hmm. and be able to distinguish between them and somebody else that's putting out similar content, right. but just doesn't have that that presence yeah. that they yeah. have. I think I think that's right. And I think we saw a big shift in terms of that when Instagram started incorporating video a lot more. And it was like the types of creators that we had to look at if you wanted to do a story were much different than the types that were just doing in-feed. Because we found so many influencers who were great at like still posts just fell so flat in yeah. video. And they couldn't be video creators. And it's, it's a totally right. different thing. And we've, we've done actually quite a bit of research into it to see like, you know, people in front of the camera really do. like. That is that is the goal. If you want to move the needle on sales, you need somebody who's going to be really great and in front of the camera. Yeah. And those people, to, to piggyback on that, those people might not be able to do live um, That's right. video, which is a completely different thing. And I think a lot of people are like, how do we crack the live code? And it's like, it, it's not as easy. Like, I don't think you can just, creators are not interchangeable in right. that way that, like you said, somebody exactly. that does like a feed, like a polished photo is different than somebody that does story, like produce stories or totally. reels is different than somebody that does live and those are like different talents and you can try and nurture those but it's not people are not interchangeable and everybody kind of brings their own thing to it um so i think that that's interesting too yeah i agree so it's like if you're you know if you're if you're the brand you got to say where where do you want to be what's your most important platform what's the type of content that's there and that's sort of how you ladder up to the type of person that you ultimately need to hire yeah right yeah i think i mean i think it's super interesting and i do think that it, it, it makes me wonder because I've, I do a lot of the social media for the social standard because I feel like it is that that is the way that's the presence that we kind of that's how we show up in the digital world right and so to me it's a little 
mm, scary, not scary, but a little bit, right? To say like, who am I okay with someone else being the face of my agency? Right. And the answer right now is no, eventually. Yes, of course. But I think a lot of brands are going to be doing, you know, the exact, the exact same thing. But it's, it's a very exciting time, I think, yes. to be doing this sort of stuff. And social media managers are getting their, they're getting their due yes. at this point. And they're about to become the next level of celebrity, I think. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they'll be the, uh, they'll be the Peloton of, you know, uh, uh, of DTC. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, but, you know, um, you think about brands and it's like they, they have a really, if they can build a, like, a, a digital presence in a world and a brand that is really cool and fun and talented and social and gives them a lot of runway to do a lot of interesting things, that's a huge recruitment tool, right? Yes. Because people will be lining up to be, let's say, you know, Taco Bell, for example. Maybe they'll be lining up to be on the social team at Taco Bell, right? I know I follow someone um, who is in Nashville and does social media for Lyft, and she just posted, like, hey, it's the time, like, come work for me. Like, I'm expanding my brief. On LinkedIn. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I follow her too. Yeah, certain people just stand out. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so, you know, she's posting about, you know, hey, come work for me. This is a time. And it's like, if that is really a golden opportunity, brands are going to be able to get top talent at better rates, especially if they're flexible in terms of what you can do. And if they do things like bylines, right? And you can set it up and you can learn from reality TV and you can create your cast. And what was the show? What was the show a while ago that had like, each sort of episode, each episode or each like mini season was a new main character. It started out with Matthew McConaughey. Oh, uh, True Detective. Yeah, like True Detective style. Like that's that's kind of an interesting way to learn, right? Yeah. Um, like I was how, thinking how you were going to say through? White Lotus, which oh yeah, that I mean too. you know there's uh, Jennifer yeah. uh, uh, Jennifer Coolidge's character. Yeah. yeah, it was like recurring, but other than that, it was like a new cast uh-huh. each time and kind of yeah, you brought people yeah. in and and it's like if people are sort of if you sort of condition people to understand that this is a limited time thing then that gets excited it's almost like you know how lululemon started that whole like flash sale where it's limited amounts of product drop you take that and you apply it to social media and to social media managers and that could create a really interesting chemistry um it's like fresh blood fresh faces people are excited who's gonna be the next person like maybe do i a, think as marketers we get recruited i feel like rec- it le- uh recruiters are gonna be like cringing like Oh my God! <laughs> you mean I have to hire somebody new every year, like the you An- know anthology series? You should you should take an anthology approach there to you your go. social so media. That I yeah. kind of like that, and yeah. I feel like that would appeal to yeah. people's sense of like wanting to hop around and yeah. get different opportunities. Yeah. And yeah, well, and it, um, it suits how um, I don't know if now we're calling them Gen Z or the younger generation. It's it suits how they hop anyway. I mean, I think most of the time when we hire someone who is uh, twenty five and younger. My, my assumption is that they will be with us no more than a year and a half before they want to try something else. And I think that's fine, and we encourage it. We want to help them do that. But I think that that ladder is up really nicely with social media yeah. stuff, too. Yeah. I think you you guys, I think you just invented a new concept, like <laughs> the anthology social media manager. That's right. Track. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there yes. we go. I love that. We're, we're, we're launching it. We're course. launching it today. Yeah. <laughs> anthology social. Uh, yeah. Hey, there you go. Yeah. I think, um, you know, that also speaks to just sort of a larger uh, cultural trend, which for better or for worse is that it seems like uh, younger, uh, younger people are just generally uh, more accustomed to gig work, right? Yeah. I mean, across, across industries. Um, yeah, and in some part, corporate America has kind of forced that on them. Correct. Um, yes, yes, that's the worst. That is the better. That is the worst versus it, maybe. the better. Foisted it the on them. But like, yeah, like yes. the environment has been set up. It's not like these people are rejecting stability, right. rejecting, you know, good paying jobs. They're just, there are a lot of layoffs. There are not that many good paying jobs. You, you yeah. know, you've got to kind of really work well, your way loyal- up. When loyalty is not extended, it's not returned. Right. Yeah, and I think um, that has also, you know, facilitated the other thing we're talking about, which is uh, 
needing to be uh, much more outward facing with your career. In other words, needing yes. to needing to uh, project your uh, your personal brand, uh, your value, your skill set uh, across uh, platforms to be kind of you know forever uh, selling yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, That's the number one request that I get right now, actually. So I consult with different companies, sure. and you know I would say the the number one request that I get from companies um, is to come in. And organizations too um, is to come in and help their employees develop their personal brands. Hmm. Um, and I think that there, you know, uh, there's a sense that like it's good for the company, it's good for the employee, and it uh, helps with retention sure. in you know feeling like the company's invested in your future and your success. Um, but so I we think don't we don't sponsor MBAs anymore. We sponsor personal branding sessions. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, it's sort of an interesting. Uh, it, it's it's almost sort of an interesting corollary to the you know massive uh, consulting industrial complex that exists across corporate America, which is basically built to um, identify uh, highly productive um, internal stars. You are now basically being asked to uh, to to sort of uh, prospect and nurture uh, people that can be outwardly facing stars to some extent Mm -hmm. and companies i think are increasingly seeing uh as much value to you know to that person to the person that can be sort of the public face of the company outside of you know what was i mean that was traditionally the ceo's role really um you know up and down uh the organization yeah um a hundred percent i think about like that quote like a rising tide lifts all ships um and that's essentially what we're looking at it's like it's good for, you want your CEO to be very visible for a long time. That was the primary role in the company was with the CEO. And now it's, listen, if your social media manager gets famous and is interviewed, if you're, you know, whoever it is mm-hmm. within the company, um, it's good for, like, as long it's as it's positive value, coverage, right? it's yeah. good for the yeah. company. Um, and, you know, and other organizations, organizations like uh, trade organizations um, that have reached out to me and are just their their concern for their members and they're like listen like this is important this idea of personal brand and we're all brands like is really important and this is how you're gonna get jobs this is how you're gonna network this is how you're gonna get opportunities this is how we're gonna have more leverage in negotiations if you have a strong personal brand and so i think you know what every whether it's an institution an organ a trade organization you know a corporate level like everybody is very invested right now in mm-hmm. that idea of we are all, we've got a thousand like little mini personal brands walking around and clearly some are going to pop more than others. You've got some people who are just inherently talented at brand building, um, but everybody should have that, that idea. And there's, you know, a lot of statistics out there. I mean, even just for recruitment, anybody who's thinking about like my ne- my first job, my next job, my promotion, I mean, the first place people are going to look I think it's like 98% of recruiters check social media. Yeah. And if you have a presence, that's great. You want to take control of that presence. If you don't have a presence, that equally speaks volumes. Yeah. Um, whether, you know, there's a concern, 50% of recruiters, you know, will not go through with somebody if they can't find any digital footprint. Because um, that's a concern of like, why are you not online? Are you hiding something? Are you not technologically <laughs> literate like are you not proficient in these platforms and and you know yeah at, at this technology and so it's like whether you show up or you don't 
it's saying something about you. And I think just taking control of like your personal narrative and owning that and shaping Mm -hmm. what you're saying about yourself so that it creates the perception within other people. Super important. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'd say it's because real G's move in silence. Yeah. (laughs) That's that's kind of what I was thinking. That that might be for like the, for the top layer of people. Right. Right. And there are going to be some people who are in professions, maybe secrecy is something not secrecy, but like, you know, having yeah. a little caution is something that you want versus someone being crazy. And, I, you know, the thing that I wonder about for um, anyone who is in college and, and kind of above, maybe like less, less than younger than 30, yeah. is how much, how much do you feel comfortable then sharing on your personal, like, you know, does it, it because, that because it all is guarded, like, do you, you know, is there, wh- where's the new platform coming up that is like, totally encrypted and you know 100% just for personal so this is for you and your friends only and no one else has access to it because I know I know person about a year ago I went through my Facebook and just really cleaned house because I was like I don't think I you know we started to do more press and I was like I don't really need these photos floating around me in college doing like collegey things I could just don't really need that out there but screenshots Um, live forever they do they so. do, but I'm not a big enough deal that someone's going to go and screenshot my Facebook. So I figure <laughs> we'll get ahead of it while we can. But and yeah. yeah, screenshots do live forever, but still there's got to be, like, for me, I think about what's the what's the line between personal and professional, right? Because as we, you know, I think we were talking about this earlier, we just launched a B2B influencer division off of some really interesting case studies and, and clients that we have. And so LinkedIn to me is that darling of, of B2B right now. You know, Twitter is very chaotic, but LinkedIn feels yeah. very clean and safe and feels like Facebook for professional. Whereas you've got all these other channels where it's like, you know, TikTok is just, it's a different, it's a different game. And we even see, you know, there are politicians twerking and doing things and you're like, wait a minute, we don't want to do that. You have to bring your, I think you have to be, you know, bring your real kind of authentic personality to TikTok in a way that LinkedIn is a very curated, professional image of yourself. So it's kind of, with LinkedIn, I feel like the guardrails come built in where you're not going to post the photos that are going to embarrass you later because exactly. it's just not a platform that encourages that. Yeah. I would say, you know, look at Snapchat. I think a lot of teenagers yeah. are on Snapchat. When you talk about Absolutely. encrypted, you know, the whole idea of like, especially on Snapchat, it moved from way back in the day. And I was a huge fan of Snapchat early on, mm-hmm. um, but it had much more uh, outwardly facing feeds, like sure. stories yeah. that anybody could, you know, your public stories. Then it kind of pivoted to now it's really much more of a messaging platform, like yeah. teen to teen or group chats or whatever. But like there is that built in, you know, if somebody takes a screenshot, you get a notification. So yeah. I feel like at, for, for you know, certainly they're not necessarily working now because a lot of people are just, you know, the, a lot of teens yeah. are on Snapchat. But I think there already is that perception of if I share something on Snapchat, it is private. Yes. It is personal. It is something that's kept within this small group or just between me and one other person. And if they screenshot it, well you know, yeah, there is one photo floating around, but maybe I'm not sharing photos with that person anymore and I'll be more cautious moving forward. So I think it's already built in. Like, I think for us, because we were already in the professional workforce, it's like, oh, I better go back and see, like, did I share anything that like could potentially embarrass me? I think for Gen Z, there's already, or teenagers, more so than Gen Z, um, really for teenagers, there's already that perception that like, my mom's posted embarrassing photos of me on Facebook. Like, you know, I already have a digital footprint based on the embarrassing stuff my parents have shared. I'm going to keep this much more private and between me and my very like core Mm. friend group. Um, And I feel like that's what, you know, they're using Snapchat for that. Does that transition, you know, it's hard to predict, but I'm curious to see like, how how does Snapchat grow with the teen, huge yeah. teen user base that they have right now, like into their twenties, 
does it take make the journey with them and change the way that well it could i think you know yeah, based on that that could be the facebook for this this cohort of people right right for this generation because I, I do think that's right and i'm sure that they could figure out something where you aren't allowed to screenshot maybe there's a way they block it or automatically goes like to a black photo or something but i do think that that that's really interesting and it, and it really ladders up nicely with i think the trend that we've seen going into dms and like what i what i have read they call it dark social Right where you don't really know what's going on, but look at like look at what Instagram is doing in the DM space. You know, look yeah. at LinkedIn, and they've started doing company DMs. They started doing thought leadership ads, like a whole bunch of things. But inboxes are they're tr they're such garbage, they're like garbage sites. Like I, I feel like some days I just can like all I can do to get through my inbox. Yeah, you know because AI has just ruined this for everything, and everyone's subscribing to a million different newsletters, and it's overwhelming. And so where do you go to actually communicate? And they don't want to do it on SMS. You know, they want to do it on WhatsApp. They want to do it on Snapchat. They as want to do it a, as a newsletter business. writer, I apologize, and I am very cognizant of that fact that like well, you know there what, is though. so much to read, and there are so many emails. And it's funny we brought up Rachel Carton earlier, yeah. and you know this is something I know. Like I've been a professional in this industry a long time, and and Rachel, we were talking about that, um, and she, you know she was saying something about you know don't forget to show up on the platform where people are and start talking to them there yeah. versus pushing them to your newsletter. Exactly. And I think, you know, even though I know this and this is just kind of like, you know, best practices, um, I feel like I was falling into that trap. I would say even six months ago, I was falling into that trap of like, Instagram, go read my newsletter. Twitter, go read my newsletter. LinkedIn, go news mm -hmm. read my newsletter. Um, and really showing up where people are. And so, you know, and again, sometimes it just takes somebody saying something to kind of like change your mindset and realize like, no, show up on the platforms where people are at and service them on that platform. Yeah. Um, and so that's where, you know, I decided to start uploading my newsletter to LinkedIn. So mm -hmm. if you're on LinkedIn, you don't have to open your email. You're exactly. going to read it right there. That's what I love. If yeah. you're on Twitter, I do a Twitter thread now. If you're on Instagram, I do a recap of the top, top stories so you don't even have to click through. I love it if people click through, you know, and that's great. It helped my open rate, for example. Um, but if they don't, they're still following me and engaging with me on that platform. And, you know, it's up to me then in the same way that as if I was a company, it's up to me to kind of figure out how do I monetize this? How do I capitalize yeah. on this, yeah. you know, on this platform? Um, and I think probably my pet peeve of people that do, whether it's newsletters or whether it's social um, creators and brands sure. is trying to drive, tra thinking of social just as amplification to drive traffic mm. back to a website or some sort of like owned property. It's not always going to work. You right. should have your owned and operated properties, but you're not always going to be able to drive traffic back. Yeah. You've got to figure out what to do with those people that you have on these platforms. Yeah, totally. I think, I think that's hundred percent right. And I think we're even kind of going back to that like whole, don't just convert. Like we got so focused on conversions for so, so long. Um, and I think brands just sort of need to take a step back and remember like, what, how do we, how do we use this for like, top of funnel all the way down to like very bottom. And it, no, there's, I think I've seen a lot of on, online conversations about like, don't influencers aren't just for this. And we still have that conversation too, to say, look, they're at the, at the end of the day, they're creating content, which is something you have to pay them for. And then do they return? Yes, so it's a whole package. Let's not look at them as just like convert, convert, convert. Because there are a handful of people who, for every brand, it's more than a handful, but there are people who are gonna convert really, really well for you. But if you look at strategies like Bloom Nutrition, for example, or Athletic Greens, part of their strategy is they are everywhere all the time. Right? It's not just that they work with these like 20 influencers that drive all their sales. That is like a misnomer, right? It's be where, yeah, to your point, show up where they're at, be constant, be vigilant, and people are gonna buy because you're everywhere all the time. Yes, and I would say even beyond the feed, like being everywhere, I think there are like 
37 different ways that you can work with creators. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's just, it's incumbent on you, you know, as a brand or as a marketer, as an agency to figure out yes. like, what can we do with these people beyond just showing up in the feed? And yeah. there's so much more you can do, so many more integrations that you can have. Um, and it just makes you stronger. It makes the relationship stronger. It builds your credibility, you know, builds trust with the audience. There's just so much more that you can do. And I think we're just kind of at the tip of the iceberg right now yeah. in terms of what we're able to do as an industry. Um, okay, so I want to switch gears a little bit and talk more about B2B influencers and kind of what you're seeing in that space because you, again, even though your audience is more creators and B2C brands, you yourself are a B2B influencer. Um, and that you're in that world that I think I'm also in, in the, in the LinkedIn community where we're all sort of figuring this thing out. So what are you seeing in the B2B world and what do you think brands and even people who are kind of becoming influencers can and should learn from the B2C space? Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you say that I'm a B2B influencer. It's funny. I don't think of myself of in course. that capacity, oh, but like, I guess yeah. everybody on LinkedIn yeah. is but, essentially... I mean, you have two people here that are being influenced by your newsletter yeah, regularly, exactly. right? Right, yeah. so... Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, makes me feel so powerful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, uh, all evidence to the contrary. You're sitting with two subscribers. Right, right. Exactly. I'm, I'm going to yeah. rule the world, two people at a time. Right. I'll just like hey. keep meeting two more people, two more people. Um, but I mean, I guess you know, us being on LinkedIn, I yeah. think like we're almost all, you know, whether it's for our own companies or sure. on behalf of like another company. Yeah, we're all advocating. Um, you know, and I, I think there there were some early examples. You and I talked about this a little sure. bit earlier, but like one of the best examples that I think unintentionally became a B2B influencer is Taylor Loren, who is <laughs> a social strategist, not Taylor Lorenz, the journalist. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, yeah. there's another one. Oh, wow. So there's Taylor Lorenz, L -O -R -E. the journalist That's... who covers the creator space. Right. No, and then yeah, there's no, I know Taylor Loren, L-O-R-E-N, who is a oh, social wow. strategist. And I would say one of the original B2B influencers, she worked for Later, the social scheduling company, mm -hmm. um, very early on, right from the beginning. And she was, she's the reason I found out about Later. She was a very early, uh, I would say, you know, essentially she was a business influencer. Like she was on Instagram, she was on LinkedIn, she was on Twitter. Um, I became aware of her because she was sharing her thought leadership all sure. the time. And then it made me interested, like, oh, who's she talking for? Like, who's who is Taylor, you know, in collaboration with essentially. And she worked at Later. It made me check out Later. It made me aware of Later's products. I then recommended Later to different people based on the fact that Taylor worked there. And I was so impressed with, you know, her, the way that she talked about social and the advice that she was giving. And sometimes it wasn't blatant. She wouldn't say like, you know, go like sign up for Later. But it was like, um, and not to endorse them or anything like I have no there's I have no stake in this um, but it was just like the way that she talked about it and the way that she covered the events that they were doing just in a very natural way that is the way a b2c influencer right. would be like you know it's product placement more than kind of product marketing mm, essentially okay. um, and I felt like Taylor did a really good job of that I mean everybody should you know, go back and check out. She then went on to work for some different brands and I think now she's working for herself. But to me, she was like, gosh, I'm thinking, and this is like dating myself, but like 2014, 2015 maybe when she worked for later and she worked for them for a few years. And it just, she to me was one of the first people that kind of captured how to do B2B really well in a way that wasn't, you're not 
It's not sell, sell, sell. You're not hitting your audience over the head with it, but you're just integrating it in a way of this is how I'm using it. Here's how it's helping me in my daily life. Here's how I'm able to like, you know, go to these great events and put on these great events and, and, you know, the people that she worked with and who she was aligning herself with through later and who later was able to align themselves with through her. And it was just one of the best examples to me. Like that was somebody who got it very early on. And I think the company benefited greatly from her as kind of like a face or voice for the company. I think we're going to see that, you know, she ended up leaving. I don't know that they've necessarily replaced her in having like, there's nobody I associate with the company now that's like, like the presence that she had. But I think that we're going to see that with companies that realize the benefit of having these, you know, whoever your employee, tapping into your employees. And I always say that when I work with companies, you know, before we go out and look for influencers or creators, let's look internally just at who you have as your internal talent or business partners or, you know, whatever it is, whoever's working for you already. Can we tap into those people? Let's look at them first before we go out and hire externally. And a lot of times you will have these superstars. And I think the people that are going to excel and the companies that are going to benefit from it are people that are able to integrate this. Like I said, it's product placement and the integration is so subtle but effective that, you know, the affiliation, the social proof um, that you're able to get by having these people represent your company, I think is going to be super effective. And the companies that jump on this are going to be able to really um, see a lot of success through that type of marketing. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, it's, if it's any indication, I mean, LinkedIn launched their thought leader ads, right? Yes. Which allows you to highlight, you know, employees and their voices. And I think that's interesting because it is something that companies have tried to figure out for a long time. And this gives them a path forward. On yeah. It. And it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, we've, we've had these discussions internally as well. Our, um, our CRO, Dylan, has almost 28,000 followers on LinkedIn. It's like, oh my gosh, we had no idea. You know, um, so there, there's a lot of those things where you, ca- you do have to kind of look at that stuff. But I wonder, like, I wonder if, and this is this is pure speculation, and who knows in the next, you know, five years when this, if and when, which I believe this will become a big trend, then as an employee, do you get, do you get representation for your following, and how does that, how do, like, how does that ladder up with your employee? Um, I'm sorry, with your employer. And like when you hire someone, are you hiring someone that says, I've got 100,000 followers on LinkedIn. Is it written into your contract that you're going to post a certain amount of times or you're going to do a certain amount of things with a brand, just like we would if we were sending an influencer on like a PR trip or an experiential event? Or right. for that matter, uh, hiring, you know, an influencer or a celebrity for, you know, a, a, uh, a, a, a honorarium uh, position yes. on your on your board or, right. you know or at a C-level, you know, executive position. I actually think, per your point about LinkedIn, you know, being the kind of 800-pound uh, gorilla, do you, I mean, do you see B2B creators migrating to other platforms as well? Because, you know, to the extent that we're prospecting a lot of people, these people on LinkedIn, they do, you know, in some cases have ancillary presences on other channels and I guess it never made sense to me why they don't uh, build those out even further because the reality is um, during their workday uh, people are spending as much time on TikTok and Instagram as they surely are on LinkedIn so uh, do you see sort of a, a growing contingent or at least would you advise you know advise B2B influencers uh, to make a pivot you know and build out their presence
presences on other platforms? Um, I think as much as, as chaotic as Twitter is, I still think that there are okay. a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of B2B yes. creators and influencers on Twitter. Many of um, shouldn't be. I'm, maybe, maybe. I'm a longtime Twitter user. No, I've no, never I mean, given I, up the I, platform. I, I, mean, I, I can't. I, I'm a diehard. I, can't, I love yeah, it. I'm, See, I'm, I'm not a diehard. Yeah. I've always been anti-Twitter until recently, and now all of a sudden I'm actually really bullish on Twitter. It's, yeah, it's still I, Until they platform. unplug Twitter, yeah. um, I will be there till the very yeah. last day when the last <laughs> tweet is sent. And there was a while there for the past six months that was like, yeah. is this it? Is this my last tweet ever? And in the same way you thought about like your first tweet, you know, there's all those tools where you can find your first tweet ever. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. what do you say when you know it's your last tweet ever? I will be there till the end. I do think a lot of people are on Twitter. Um, I hope, you know, they have a new CEO. Like, let's yep. see if she's Linda. able mm -hmm. to turn it around and, and what she's able to do with that. I do think a lot of people are on Twitter. The people that I see on LinkedIn typically are also on Twitter. Um, some of them are launching newsletters. Um, I think it's tricky. I mean, I think at this level, like, we know that anybody in the, like, sure. kind of C-suite probably already has an agency that's helping them with their LinkedIn, um, probably also has an agency that's going to be helping them with their newsletter if they put one out because they're busy, whatever it is doing, Absolutely. running the company, you know, raising funds, uh, whatever it is. And so they don't necessarily have the time to do that. The other place that I'm seeing people show up um, a lot on Discord. So yes. a lot of the kind of I would say entrepreneur creators or creators that help other creators understand the business. I'm thinking of like Colin and Samir, um, uh -huh. John Ushai, like yeah. all of these people have recently launched Discord servers. Um, it's, I, I have a hard time wrapping my head. The conversation sometimes just goes so quickly. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's just a matter of being used to it. Like I'm used to Twitter and I can look at TweetDeck and follow multiple lists and columns of conversations going on. I think it's just Discord. Like I'm newer yeah. to Discord. And so catching up on Discord just kind of uh, like makes my brain, I need to adjust kind of my, my brain. Um, but I'm seeing so many business creators get on discord and run discord servers that i think that that's the place uh, like who well, it's knows community management right that's what, yeah that's you, what it yeah, that's mean, what it seems and i to talked to like. colin and samir and they were like that was their one big yeah. tip is like go into it very intentionally but also you know have a plan for like who is yeah. your moderator or community manager exactly that is going to help you manage this yes. um and so you know who knows if that lasts but i would say if there was any trend that i saw this year like Discord previously, I think was very much considered for gamers. I think Discord has done an amazing job this year yeah. at recruiting other types of creators and other types of users to their totally. platform and being the place that I'm seeing a lot of business creators. But do you host see do you see business creators who are like solopreneurs who are monetizing their following and their expertise, or do you see um, have you seen any brands get on Discord in? a way that is like B2B brands, obviously B2C brands have done it, but like I wonder if B2B brands would have success there or not, right? Um, probably not. I think That's the I way think that you could potentially have success is if you had a creator kind of as the, the face of it sure. and you thought about it a little bit like Facebook groups. And I have to give a nod yeah. to Facebook groups because yes. I'm a big fan as, as a product, like the interface of the UX of Facebook groups I think is excellent and it's probably like the best thing that Facebook has going yeah. for it is groups. Agreed. Um, and if you find, and that's where I think you could have B2C or B2B, yeah. you know, the way that you use Facebook groups and you think about 
you don't want it just to be a broad promotional channel. Like it's, it's different. You can't go into it just thinking like, you know, we're going to promote ourselves. We're going to talk about the company every day. But if there's like a small kind of, you can find a way to niche down and figure out a subset of your, mm. your, you know, your customers, like um, power users, basically. power users and thinking about the problems that they have. And like, is this a space for us to talk about, I don't know, widgets and nuts and bolts and you know, whatever it yeah. is that you're, you're selling and kind of answer those problems and be a channel for these people or sure. people within this industry to talk. I think that you could probably, you know, take that over to discord. I think it depends on your audience sure. and I think whether or not, you know, is your audience on discord, are they willing to join discord right. to join your discord server? That's a different question. So I think you have to look at like, okay, yeah. who are our power users exactly. and would they go there or are we better served with a Facebook group? Or what I'm seeing also Geneva, I don't know if you're on Geneva, oh, no. which mm -hmm. is kind of a, it's marketing itself essentially as a uh, small uh, communities for women, um, oh. but also a lot of business women and founders and, mm. um, you know, more right now, I think B2, uh, you know, B2C, but sure. like, um, I think the potential is there too. And I'm seeing Geneva thrown more and more into those conversations. Mm. Um, so that's something that I've been kind of in, interested in exploring and hearing more about. Um, okay. Certainly not saying like I'm, I'm not an expert, um, but I am curious enough influential people have been talking about it that right. I'm like, oh, this is worth checking out and, okay. and learning more about. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. And I agree with your synopsis. I think realistically, Discord has some potential for different use cases, we're not there yet. And if you're right. a B2B marketer, it's probably not a priority for you. Really, yeah. it's like we gotta look at, I think we have to look at LinkedIn and Twitter, and then depending on the type of content and the type of product and business you are, YouTube can be helpful for tutorials and like informational things and things like that. I actually, I, I agree that like a lot of people are on, there are certain businesses that make sense. Like if I'm Slack, for example, heck yeah, heck yes I'm on TikTok because all of the younger people who are gonna to wanna to use that at your company are there and they're being entertained and they can talk about that stuff. And plus, I think that with Gen Z, they don't necessarily, they have a certain way that they speak and they speak that way across all platforms. Right. It may change, like the, the medium may change a little bit, but like I see social media managers on LinkedIn talking about the same things that they're talking about on, on um, TikTok. Yeah. It's just the form of content. It's a little bit and I have to say, by the way, I love Slack. I have a yeah. private Slack channel for my paying subscribers of my newsletter. Um, and yep. I love it. I am, uh, I don't know. I just like, there's but Discord is Slack, but at a different, it's, like, you know what I mean? I think of Discord as being, uh, as being sort of um, the spawn of uh, Slack and Clubhouse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you have a few other, but you can, you can do video or you can do audio uh, messages on Slack as well. Yeah, but I feel like people don't use Oh, yeah, yeah as, probably don't as use it. much. I actually like that, that I don't have to talk. I can just yes. type. To yeah. me, it's kind of like, it's another version of Twitter or LinkedIn. Yeah. Like, that's why I ended yeah. up choosing Slack, just yeah. because I was like, okay, I can like, it's what I excel at. I'm yeah. better written than I am, sure. I think, verbal. Okay. Um, yeah. And so I'm just more comfortable being able to like, think about my, you know, formulate these thoughts. We have these like Q and A's or AMA's um, yeah. every week. And so being able to just kind of like uh, answer questions in a very, um, I think what I like about Slack is just, it's very linear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, it's just the way that my mind works. And so I'm able to kind of like follow those threads and it makes sense to me. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm very interested in what Slack does. I'm also interested in, um, you know, Notion. Uh, yes, I've, I was thinking a lot about Notion. We were talking about community and power users because I thought, wow, Discord is probably a really great place for like brands like that 
to get feedback from power users and to do and to test and do interesting things. So. Yeah. And I've always been really interested in what Notion does with, um, they work with JT Barnett, who's okay. a TikToker. He was a former athlete turned TikToker influencer. Yeah. Um, he now consults for brands and helping connect them with TikTokers and figure out their TikTok strategy. Um, but I, you know, when we talked about the example of like, there's 37 things you can do with a creator, yep. don't just stick to feed endorsements. To me, Notion and the way that they've worked with JT Barnett has been kind of like a stellar example yeah. of how you want to work with a business creator. Um, he hosts events for them. He hosts events that they sponsor. He sells, um, you know, Notion templates on Notion. Like there's just so many different yeah. ways. And I'm just, uh, if you're, you know, if you need a good example of how a uh, SaaS company is working with a business creator and the different ways that they can do it. Just start w looking at his uh, TikTok and Instagram yeah. feeds, looking at his stories. Well, people um, are fanatical about Notion though. That's the thing that they have yeah. going for them because they have a whole big power user segment and they don't pay them. They are just happy to be part of it because they love the product so much, um, which kind of goes back to, I think, you know, loyalty issues that we were talking about earlier where people aren't loyal, but when you find loyalty and when you deliver a good quality product, so much better. You get, yeah. you, you get a lot of things for free. And that, I mean, they bake that in. We must have read yes. the same article about kind yeah. of like their origin story mm -hmm. exactly. and essentially like, yeah, how yes. they, their initial growth was like yep. from these power users. And you know, I mean, that's, that's propelled everything, right? Like your exactly. power users are all, yeah. it was whatever kind of business you are, like your power users are going to be the thing that are going to like yeah. drive word of mouth and social proof and all those other good things. And like you said, get a lot of stuff for free, exactly. um, just in terms of there the promotion. There's a fascinating New Yorker article from probably about 10 years ago about Soylent um, and the extent to which uh, before, when it was, you know, initially just a, a mix, um, the extent to which they really um, embraced their power users uh, who were concocting sort of all of their own, you know, hacks and recipes. And they held like a, um, it was, you know, effectively like a, a, a Soylent enthusiast meet and greet yeah. uh, somewhere um, where, you know, everybody kind of traded, uh, traded tips and tricks. And um, unfortunately, um, in their case, they had to pivot from that to selling prepackaged bottles because unfortunately letting people, encouraging people to uh, to concoct their own Soylent at home uh, was not uh, very good for their bottom line. <laughs> um, so yes, power users uh, giveth and power users uh, taketh away. But if you can, you know, if you can uh, co-opt that momentum, uh, you know, yeah, it's, uh, it, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a juggernaut. And that's the power of the internet is you can find your niche and yeah. you can find your people and they can connect and you can build a community really yeah. quickly. Yeah. Great. Great point. Yeah. Um, well, I think with that, we'll wrap it. But Leah, it was great to have you, Jake. Thanks for joining. Um, oh, yes. Thank you. I Thank you so much for having me, especially in this beautiful space. I yeah. love it. Usually I'm on a Zoom or Riverside. Or I know. Like, it's nice to do something. It's nice to do something in person for it once, is, isn't and it? It is. It's gorgeous. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. It was a great conversation, um, and I hope we can do it again soon. Thank you. Um,